Welcome to Rooted. On this episode, we sit down with Rebecca Jones, who has been part of the Faith Community Church family since its inception. As our conversation begins, I ask Rebecca about what her childhood was like and some of her earliest memories of Jesus in her life. I was It was always open to question, um, even though I grew up initially in a very rigid church and the idea of doubting God was not uh, even entertained. Like if it was in the Bible, you couldn't question the validity of it because it was God's holy word. And so therefore it was beyond question. In high school, I definitely had moments of this doesn't make sense. How do I know that it's true? For me, how can it be real? This was written 2000 years ago. It wasn't written by a 15 year old girl who just had her heart broken or whatever the instance was. Um, so I definitely had moments of that, uh, but I, I always circled back to, but God is real. And even in the midst of my questioning, that was always interwoven into it of, no, but God is real. Rebecca had mentioned something about rigidness as she grew up in a church family. And so I wanted to know more about that. The church I originally grew up until about eighth grade was a very legalistic church. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, to the point, men wore suits and ties on Sundays. Women were in dresses and skirts. If a woman wore pants to church, it was an abomination. Um, I remember, for example, I was in sixth grade, and there was a pair of purple cord pants that I begged my mother for from Mervyn's. So <laughs> that's how long ago this was. And I begged and begged for these purple cords because they were like this deep eggplant color. I can still picture them. I finally, my mom relented. She got me these purple cords. I wore them to church with a light purple mock turtleneck and a white crocheted vest. I looked good. And I just remember I was so proud of this outfit and I felt so good. And my small group leader came to me and said, what we wear on the outside is a reflection of our heart for Jesus. What is your outfit telling God? And I was destroyed and I never wore the pants again. And I just, I was so crushed Mm -hmm. because somehow my, my outward physical showing was not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And we left that church when I was in eighth grade and we came to Santa Cruz Bible. And I remembered walking in the first day and there was a kid wearing jeans that had gaping holes in the knees and were ragged on the bottom. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is that telling God about what you feel? And they were like, God doesn't care that I'm in ragged jeans. God cares that my heart loves him. And it was the it was eye opening wow, to me right. as an eighth grader, and it it was such a huge part. So there definitely have been moments in my life where I've had to shed that. It's not that I have purple cords. <laughs> it's not what I wear to church. It's God loves my heart, mm-hmm. and that's what He looks for, yeah. and not how I dress my body. Rebecca did such a great job giving us such valuable insight into how she related with Jesus and and certainly her experiences growing up in different styles of churches. And I wanted to kind of get more to the story and some of the background of 
when she first met Jason and they became a couple, and how that transformed her faith, her life, her journey. My first memory of Jace is meeting him in the quad at Cabrillo. And he was my brother's friend. And I'm like, here's this guy. He's really tall. He's got piercing blue eyes. So I can't look in his eyes because it freaks me out. And I remember chatting with him and him telling me he had a twin brother. He does not have a twin brother. (laughs) But that was his like introduction. Yeah, I have a twin brother. And then the next time I met him, I asked how his twin was. And he looked at me like I was crazy. So that's my first memory of Jason. It was great getting some of that background material from Bex, and especially as she and Jason became a young married couple that have their son Silas. And I also wanted to know, though, what are some of those moments as an adult that she can recall where there was this divine power, this divine influence, these God moments, if you will, that really proved to test her faith to expand her faith like never before. Absolutely. I actually have a handful of them, um, but probably the earliest one that I remember, and it's another one of those very visceral memories. I can still put myself back there. I was 15. Um, We had just gotten home from visiting my grandparents around Christmas, and there was a message for my brother on the answering machine that one of our friends had been killed in a car accident. And... Um, it was another one of our friends who was the driver of the car. And I remember being devastated. I had grown up with this kid. I had known him Well, I was 15. So I had known him 10 years. And I remember I went into my bedroom and I just sobbed and I railed against God. And I was like, if you are real, how could you do this? How could you take someone so young if you're so just and loving and all the things that the Bible says you are, how can this happen? And not that you ever really give God an ultimatum because you can't really do that. (laughs) But at 15, in my mind, I did the ultimatum of you have to show yourself to me now or I'm done and I'm walking away because a loving God doesn't do this. And I remember so vividly, I was crying to the point where I was hyperventilating. I could not breathe. I was so upset. And this amazing peace came over myself. It felt like somebody had wrapped me in a warm blanket and was holding me. And I I physically felt like I was being held. And I was alone in my bedroom at 15. And I just remembered this peace and calm coming over my body and this, I don't know if it was a voice that I heard just in my head or if it was actually audible, but it just said, I'm here. And I have gone back to that moment for 23 years when things get hard and I question, God, are you, are you here? Are you seeing this? Are you aware of what's happening And I just have that peace that comes over and the, I'm here. Rebecca brings up something that I think many of us can relate with. And that is, if God does exist and God is all powerful and all loving, why then do these horrible things sometimes happen? Why then do some of these horrible things happen to good people? And even perhaps more so, why 
would a loving God allow these things to happen to even people that proclaim to know and love him? It's it's hard because I I don't have the answer to that other than God does not cause these things. He doesn't look at you and say, wow, you've done a really terrible job with the life I gave you. So now I'm going to hand you this and good luck. That's not that's not our God. That's not the loving God that we have. We have free will. We have free choice. The results of free will and free choice, unfortunately, are death and disease. So God does not cause those things, but he does allow them to happen. And I don't always understand the difference. Um, we have been handed things in our life, in our marriage, that I don't understand why we were handed them. Even now, looking back, I still can't say that I fully understand, but I can say that God was good through all of it. For those of us that have known the Joneses for any length of time, we know that a major part of their story is how God worked through both of their lives, both as individuals as well as a family, upon learning of Jason's diagnosis of leukemia. Well, one thing I think it's important to know is with acute myeloid leukemia, there's nothing to remove. There's no tumor. There's no growth. There's nothing you can pull out of the body to make it stop. Um, your bone marrow, where your blood is created in your body, in Jason's body, instead of producing red blood cells, it produced cancer. And so his body basically became a cancer factory. And all of the cells that were supposed to become blood became cancer. Um, so I think that's something that needs to be noted and gosh, it listening to Jason talk about it, it, it hurts and it still brings tears to my eyes to think about what we walked through. And our son is eight now and Silas had just turned one. Um, and I mean, getting the cancer diagnosis there aren't enough tears to drown out the grief that you feel. And then we meet with the doctors and they give you hope, which they don't see a lot of. And you can tell even as they're giving you this hope, they're hedging their bets. I remember meeting with Jason's hematologist at Stanford, Dr. Medeiros, and we had just gone through, they call it induction chemo. We had just gone through induction. Jason was released from the hospital. I used to tease that he was my Black Friday deal that Thanksgiving. I got the best deal around. I got to take him home. Um, and then we met with him the following week in December, and he wanted Jason to start the next round of chemo on Christmas. And it was going to be the first Christmas that Silas would remember. And I begged him to let Jason be home. And he looked at me and he's like, my goal is to give him 10 Christmases, not one. I'm like, well, that's a great goal, but that's not enough. Like, I appreciate that you want to give me 10 years with my husband, but no, I want more because um, I'm greedy. <laughs> and, and so we came to a compromise and we went in the day after Christmas but even as he was trying to give us that hope of 10 Christmases together, 
you could tell that he didn't really believe that he could give us 10 Christmases because of the disease that was raging through his body. And at this point, he was technically in remission. Um, the chemo had been so abrasive that it had knocked the cancer out. Um, it wouldn't stay that way. We learned after he went into bone marrow that um, he was no longer in remission and that 60% of his blood was cancer again. Um, but his bone marrow doctor said that didn't matter because what they were about to give him, if he survived it, that that's what it came down to is they were going to give him so many chemicals and so much drugs at such a high potency that it would be a, a miracle if he survived the chemo. Um, and that's what we had to sign off on. Um, so when Jason was in the hospital, when he was on F ground, I was allowed to stay with him. When he went to bone marrow, um, I was not allowed to stay overnight. And I mean, there's so many amazing little pockets of God stories in this. And the whole thing is an amazing God story. But um, while it was physically hell for Jason and everything he was going through, it was both physical and emotional hell for me because I had to decide between my husband and my son, who would I stay with? Who needed me more? Um, sorry, I still get really emotional about this. Um, thankfully, both my parents and Jason's parents did not question at all how they could help. They stepped up and took Silas. And for eight months, Silas lived with his grandparents. Four days a week, he'd be with my mom and dad. Three days a week, he'd be with Jason's mom and dad. And then a couple times a week, a couple hours at a time, they would bring Silas to the hospital so that we could see him and we could have time with him. And then maybe once a week, I would go home for the night so I could sleep in my own bed and shower, not at the hospital, and I would get to have Silas overnight. I didn't see his first steps. My mother-in-law saw that because I was at the hospital with my husband. I don't regret being at the hospital with my husband, but that's a memory I don't hold. And since he's our only kid, that kind of hurts that that's a memory that I don't get to hold. But it's held by someone who loves him very much. So that helps a little. Um, but yeah, it was, it was hell. It was being emotionally torn in two of, I'm not there for my son who's hitting all these major milestones at a year old. I'm not really there for my husband because I can't take his place. I can't do this for him. And I wanted to. And being caught in the limbo of that, of who needs me more. Um, and I chose Jason. The more I listened to Rebecca, the more I had this strong desire to really kind of connect some dots within her story. At the beginning of the podcast, she talked about not having a full answer of why sometimes horrible things happen to really good people or that horrible things even happen to people that love God and God loves back and how she didn't fully understand 
how that all fit together, but just trusting in a plan, a divine plan. And so I really wanted to understand better from her perspective how these two things came together. I moved from hoping that there was a God and trusting that there was a God to knowing that there is a God. Um, I remember in the midst of it, I went to Baymont where my mother-in-law worked at the time and where I currently work. And I ran into a coworker and she asked me, how is your faith? And I looked at her and I said, I don't have faith. I, I no longer have faith in God. And she was appalled. And I said, no, you misunderstand. I no longer just hope and have faith that there is a God out there. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God out there. And I used to drive to the hospital when I would um, stay somewhere else for the night to get a little bit of rest because sleeping on a cot in a hospital room <laughs> is not super comfortable. Um, sorry, husband. <laughs> I know. I did. <laughs> Um, but I would drive to the hospital and I would, I would pour out my sorrow and I would pour out my anger and I would pour out my grief. And just like when I was 15, where I felt like someone was holding me and that voice of I'm here every time I would just pour it out. I would feel God's peace just invade into my soul where that grief was. And there was, I mean, there were so many moments of, and Jason will agree with this. We never did the why us, you know, why God would you put us through this? We've been faithful servants to you. We've, you know, we're law abiding citizens. We exercise and we eat well and we, you know, none of that matters. None of that matters. And so we never did the why us God. Um, we did always pray that there would be redemption from it. Whatever it was we had to face, that God would redeem it somehow. And this right here, being able to tell our story, has probably been the biggest redemption of what we walked through. Um, but yeah, it just, it stopped being a faith in God and it became a knowing. The cynic inside me had to ask the question that I think a lot of people, especially persons that don't believe in a God, that don't believe in a loving God, would want to ask. And, and that is, Rebecca, was it was it divine intervention? Was it God's work that saved your husband? Or, or was it modern medicine? Was it science and the skill of the doctors that actually saved your husband? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why does there have to be a division between God and medicine? There is no division. Yes. Scientists came up with this amazing procedure and God gave them the wisdom to come up with this amazing procedure. I don't, personally, I don't see a difference. I don't believe that we either trust God or we trust science. I think we can do both. And yes, Stanford is amazing. It is an incredible teaching hospital and there are doctors and nurses there that I am so thankful for and I owe my husband's life to and I owe my husband's life to our God who loves us because he gave us these doctors and nurses and put into them the desire to heal people 
That's what I would say to the cynic. Why does there have to be a distinction? Why do I have to choose one or the other? There were spots in his lungs that they saw on an x-ray. And so they were going to do a lung washing where they were going to, even though the tissue of his lungs was full of fluid, so he his lungs couldn't expand properly, um, they were going to basically flood his lung cavity with saline and then suck it out to make sure that there was no bleeding in his lungs because that's what they had become concerned with was that it wasn't his, the tissue of his lungs wasn't just filling with fluid, but that it was filling with blood. Um, it was very scary. And, you know, Jace had said the nurses started treating me different and you, you kind of become this weird little family unit. And it was always the same nurses that would take care of Jason. And when I would show up in the mornings, um, they started letting me come earlier and earlier, the sicker he got. And they started letting me stay later and later, the sicker he got. And then um, when I showed up on Thursday and he was bad and we had Aaron as our nurse and she came around the counter and hugged me and that had I mean, we always joked and laughed and smiled with each other, but there was no physical contact. And she hugged me and she said, before you go in, you need to understand what happened last night. And she walked me through putting him on oxygen and turning up the pain pump and all of these things. And she said, we're doing our best to make him comfortable. You may want to start calling family. And to try and figure out how to tell my mother-in-law that she needed to come and say goodbye to her son and to call my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law and my father-in-law, and I couldn't do it. Um, And then Friday, when I came to the hospital, they had decided that they needed to wash his lungs out and do this procedure, Um, and it was terrifying. It was supposed to be a 20-minute procedure, and an hour and a half later, he wasn't out of the operating. And it was terrifying. So much of the Christian faith is made up of having a deep, deep understanding of faithfulness and not some blind hope, not some I'll cross my fingers and hope that this loving God exists, but this understanding not only that God exists, but that he is a loving figure. And so as, as Rebecca wrapped up her story, I wanted to know of all the things that she shared, what would she share with the person that doesn't yet know this loving God? Even in the most terrifying moment, I was not alone. Even sitting in the waiting room, even driving in my car and the, the, gut-wrenching, overwhelming grief that just was in every part of me. I was not alone. I didn't walk this road alone. Yes, I walked it with Jason, but it's so much more than that. Even physically when I was by myself, I was not alone. 